abused and sometimes even killed for the sake of the gospel. What goes through your mind when you hear that? When you're reminded of the six million Jews that were killed in the Holocaust? With the half a million people killed in Rwanda during that genocide? Or the hundreds of thousands in Sudan in the war of Darfur? What comes through your mind when you hear of the shooting at Fort Hood this past week where 13 soldiers were killed and dozens of others wounded? What goes through your mind when you hear of this DePaul student just on Halloween, killed coming on the way home, shot to death? What goes through your mind when you hear of tragedies, horrible crises, illness, Because when we're confronted with those things, we're confronted with the ultimate problem of evil. And a natural question that stems from that problem of evil is, why? Why, God? Why did you let this happen? And it's in particularly those times that our view of God, our understanding of God, is most important. Especially at those times. It's at those times that a shallow view, a shallow theology just won't cut it. It won't, it won't cut it. And you'll be in grave danger when your faith in God is a mile wide because you've been in church for years or you've been a Christian for years but only an inch deep because you've never set your heart to pursue to know God. We're in grave danger in those circumstances when the heart-gripping suddenness of crises confronts you, or when the gloomy face of tragedy stares you in the eye, when the cold fingers of despair want to hold your hand, it's your view of God that will see you through it. And unless we come to grasp with the sovereignty of God, the depravity of mankind, the hope of eternal life, unless we do that, we'll, we will never know how to respond evil but when we've set our hearts to know God at that point we can begin to see darkness in a new light today we're going to look at Malachi chapter 2 verses 17 through chapter 3 verse 5 could you open your Bibles there we're in the middle of a series on the book of Malachi that I've titled Devoted Divided or On the Defensive because that's our those are the options we have when responding to God in our life Will we respond in further devotion to Him? Will we respond trying to walk for the world and walk for God? Or will we be on the defensive, trying to justify the way we're living when in reality it doesn't please God? And Malachi's word for his people, for the people of Israel, in this passage, is a word that we need to hear. Because it's it's something that stems out of their shallow theology. Their shallow view of God led them to walk in the murky waters of cynicism, skepticism, and unbelief. And Malachi is calling them to see the bigger picture. To see that God is in control in every detail. That He is sovereign. That He is all-powerful. So would you look at, with me, in chapter 2, verse 17. And here we're going to get the essence of their shallow view of God and how it's revealed in, these, in this verse. Verse 17 says, this is God speaking, you, or Malachi, I'm sorry, 
You have wearied the Lord with your words. Stating it right there. God was made weary. God's wearied by their words. He's wearied by it. It makes him tired. And of course, this is Malachi using language that we understand. God doesn't get fatigued. God doesn't need a nap. But Malachi is using this word that appeals to us. He says, you've wearied God with your words. And here they respond on the defensive. But you say, how have we wearied him? Now this can be taken as a question that really is trying to sincerely understand, well, really God, how how have we done this? But the next few sentences that follow show they knew what they were doing. And this has been the case throughout the book of Malachi, and this is how they respond. It says, Malachi says, You weary God by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? God is never said to be wearied by our prayers in the Bible. Never is he wearied by our prayers. But he's wearied by a sinful heart. Isaiah 43 says, You have burdened me with your sins, you have wearied me with your iniquities. It wasn't the fact that they made a statement or they asked a question that wearied God, but it was the heart behind it. They say that God says evil is good. They've accused God of flipping morals. God, you think that evil things are good things and good things are evil. And then they go on to say, and he delights in them. I mean, the first statement is just mean. The second one's just nasty. God says evil is good and God actually delights in evil. The word delight has this idea of pleasure. He finds enjoyment in it. So God is here looking on his creation and he's having a blast when he sees evil happen. That's the way they've interpreted him. And what a slap in the face of God this is. Because as uh, Jeremiah 9 says, But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight, same word, I delight in these things, says the Lord of hosts. They accused God of delighting in the very thing that he does not delight in the very opposite. God says, no, I delight in loving kindness and justice and righteousness. They misunderstood God and by their question, they revealed that their theology and their view of God was shallow. Their misunderstanding was this. There's several of them, but this is one of them. If God doesn't act against something, he must approve of it. That was their conclusion. God, if you don't do something about it, you must approve of it. And their failure was, they didn't see God's bigger picture. They didn't see God at work. And because they didn't see Him, they assumed He wasn't. God is at work even when we cannot see it. Even when evil appears to be reigning in our society, God is at work. God is at work in our lives in the midst of that. Their second misunderstanding was, they thought this, if God were good then, He would do something about evil. God doesn't do something about evil, therefore, God is not good. An attack at His person, at the very core of who God is. God is 
good. God is good. And they question it. But they go on. They not only make the statement that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and He delights in them, but they also ask this question, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? The implicit statement behind that is, God is absent. God is uninvolved. God is unconcerned. God is stalling. He doesn't care. And sometimes we have this misunderstanding in our lives that God doesn't care, but He does. And But notice, God is not rebuking them for the question. He's not wearied by the fact that they ask questions. Don't misunderstand this. When we come to God with a burden on our heart, or when something comes into our life, a trial, a crisis, it's not wrong to ask, God, why is this happening? That's not wrong. It's not wrong to ask why. It's not wrong to say, God, I'm having a hard time with this. God, I know you're good, but right now I'm having a hard time feeling that. That's not wrong. That's not what, he's, what God's weary by. He's weary with, by what's implied. God, you are not good. You are not concerned. You are unjust. In fact, you delight in evil. That's the problem God has here. God wants authenticity from us. He wants us to come with our brokenness, but He wants us to question from a position of faith, not question from a position of rebellion. And the people Malachi talks to have done just this. But Micah 6.8 says, God has shown you what is good and what He requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God calls them to mercy, justice, humility. And He would not call His people to do the very things He does not do. God is just, merciful, and great. So then their other implied thought is, well, if God doesn't execute justice, some might ask, maybe He doesn't have the power to do it. Perhaps God is not in control. Maybe that's why there's evil in the world. Maybe that's why these horrible atrocities take place. Maybe God couldn't stop it. Does that sound ridiculous? There's a very prominent trend among evangelical Christianity that takes an understanding of God that God doesn't know the future with certainty. They say God is all-knowing regarding the things that are knowable. God knows the past with perfection. He knows the present with perfection. But since the future has not taken place, he cannot know the future with perfection. This is a view called open theism and is very prominent among among certain Christians. And it's an insult to God. You may have heard it said that in the Garden of Eden, God made man in his own image and then man returned the favor. And I get a sense of that with this understanding of open theism. That... When trials happen, when bad things take place, the reason God didn't stop it in part is because maybe He didn't know it was going to happen. That's their understanding. So God can indeed prevent a car accident. He's all-powerful. He can do it. And if He knows it's going to happen, He can stop it. But if something takes place that catches Him off guard, He can't. A God who doesn't know the future with certainty is not a God 
who knows everything. God is in control. And He is powerful. He is all-knowing. And evil happens in this world not because God can't control it. That's not the reason. It's a misunderstanding that usurps God of His greatness and really is an insult to Him, I believe. Perhaps they understood that God was just stalling for the sake of, for the sake of stalling. And you know, shallow theology, a shallow view of God makes us wonder about God's love and goodness. And yet when we come to, we set our hearts to know Him, we find the very opposite thing to be true. So why does God delay in executing justice in this world? It's a big question, huh? Well, I think in part, He isn't delaying and He is doing it in part. But Second Peter has a wonderful passage to us in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I want to read this for you. It says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him, this is waiting for Christ's return, without spot or blemish and at peace. And it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. God patiently waits as an act of mercy. Could you imagine if God executed justice the moment of our rebellion? I guarantee you not one of us would be here at this moment. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Romans tells us that God demonstrates His own love toward us while we were still sinners, while we deserved judgment, Jesus Christ died for us and took that judgment on Himself. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life offered to those who trust in Him. So in part the answer, why doesn't God move swiftly and execute all justice? Well, it's because He's merciful and He wants to draw people to Himself. So when we're confronted with these issues of evil, of crises, of despair, take a step back and look at God from a different sight. See darkness, evil, from a different light. Recognize God's in control. He's not stalling because He lacks compassion. He's merciful and gracious. But God doesn't remain silent here in Malachi. He responds to these accusations, if not insults. They said, God uh, delights in evil. They said, God is absent. Where is the God of justice? As if he did not care. And in chapter 3, verse 1, God responds. And he responds with the word, behold. This word, behold, carries this idea that God, or that Malachi is about to say something regarding God's activity, even future events. And he's saying, listen up to what I'm about to say. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, this one that you're calling out, this one that you're insulting, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi is speaking of something that's going to take place. 
that already is in part, but in future will. You see in, chapter, in, in, in verse 2, he says, But who can endure the day of His coming? Implying something that has not yet taken place. Malachi tells them that God's going to send a messenger. He's going to send a messenger and he will prepare the way for God. Now we don't know a lot about this messenger, but it's interesting because he says, Behold, I, this is Yahweh speaking, I send my messenger. The Hebrew word for, Mal- uh, for messenger is Malachi. So it says, I, Yahweh, send my Malachi and he will prepare the way before me. So there's a double understanding here. In part, Malachi is the one who's going to preach repentance and prepare the way for God to move among his people. But even Malachi says, there's a day that will be coming. Malachi was only a partial fulfillment of this. But there will be one who comes at a future time, says Malachi, who will prepare the way for the Lord. And you see that there, he says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The word Lord there is not the same word for Lord we get throughout the book of Malachi. Throughout the book of Malachi, the word Lord is Yahweh. But here the word is Adonai. So this is what chapter 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I, Yahweh, send my Malachi, my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me through a message of repentance, when we'll get to that in a moment. And the Lord Adonai, who you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. Malachi says that the temple belongs to the Lord, Adonai. But isn't the temple Yahweh's temple? Malachi is getting at something here that is yet to happen, that God is going to do when he works in his pe- among his people. And the beauty of this is that the New Testament picks up on this. Mark chapter 1 opens up with this statement. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah, and is also in Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger before you, who prepare your way. It's quoting Malachi. And it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make uh, make straight his paths. And the next verse says, John appeared baptizing. The New Testament recognizes Malachi's words to be fulfilled in John the Baptist. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, who will be John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. Mark says that John preached a baptism of repentance and a forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 9, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. As we see in the New Testament, that John the Baptist would be this messenger who would preach repentance so that when Jesus comes to this earth, he can draw people to himself. Their hearts would have been prepared by John. And Malachi is hinting at this. They ask the question, where is the God of justice? And Malachi says, behold, he's going to send his messenger. And in part, I fulfill that. I am preaching to you guys, says Malachi. But in reality, ultimately, God will meet and walk among his people in a mighty way. And he himself would take on the flesh of humanity. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will come into his temple. And it says in Malachi that he is the messenger of the covenant. Jesus would come and establish a new covenant. Not the covenant of the law that Moses did. But Jesus, remember in the upper room, says, when he took the blood of the the, the Jews and said, this is my blood of the new covenant. 
Drink this in remembrance of me. Jesus would institute something new where God would take a heart of stone and make it into flesh. Where God would put His Spirit inside of His people and He would forgive their sins and that they could have access into His presence. And Malachi is pointing to this very fact that God will respond. He is responding. He's not just delaying or stalling because He doesn't care. But He will respond when He wants to respond in the way He wants to respond. It's interesting that Malachi says that the Lord will enter the temple. Remember in chapter 1, the temple was the very place that such atrocities were taking place. They were offering blemished sacrifices. They are giving God the worst of their flock. Blind, lame, torn apart sheep. And God says, do you really think that I'm going to receive this? But he's not done with them because he would say that I myself, Yahweh, will enter the temple. I'm going to enter it. I'm not done with you. And I'm going to do a work. What is that work that God is going to do? We continue reading in verse 2. It says, But who can endure the day of this coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's great. How can you stand before him? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify and, and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. They ask the question, God, where are you? God responds, I'm at work. And when I come, I'm not going to come in the way you thought I was going to come. I'm going to come and refine my people. I'm going to come and purify my people. They wanted God to come and execute justice on evil, not realizing that God's desire is to first come and purify His people. God's desire is to make us right. He says, I will come like a refiner's fire. And John Piper says, no, that's not, he didn't say I'm going to come like a forest fire. Forest fire consumes. God is a consuming fire, but not with his people. God is a refiner's fire. A refiner takes a piece of silver and places it over a fire. The intensity of the heat will begin to purge that silver from all the impurities that are in it. And the silver become more and more pure and precious as it's held over a fire. Malachi says that God will sit as a refiner. You see that? Because the refiner sits down and watches this take place. Doesn't want to leave the piece of metal under the fire or over the fire for too long. He wants to leave it for the right amount of time to make it into the metal, the material that he wants it to be. Malachi says, God is like a refiner. But he says, God is like a refiner's fire, and God is the refiner. God is the fire, and God is a person watching the material. It's a beautiful picture here. So when you feel that you're under fire, that there are things in your life that are almost consuming you, Malachi says, God is the fire. It's not out of his control, it's not beyond him. He's not, he doesn't have his hands up saying, what's going on? He's working through it as the fire itself and as the refiner, making sure that you're going to be purified. Don't begrudge your trials, people of God. James says, count it all joy 
And we face trials of many kinds. He says, count it all joy. Because the testing of our faith will develop perseverance. Don't begrudge the valleys that Jose spoke of. In the valley, God will make you into who He wants you to be. And when we have a shallow view of God or a shallow theology, we respond and say, God, you have no justice. You don't care about me. Evil, there's evil going on. And God, you know what? I think you delight in it. Because here, me, me and your child, I'm going through this. But a deepening view of God, one that comes from a walk with Him, says, God, I'm in this valley. Help me. It hurts. Purify me. He said that God is like a fuller's soap. It is a soap that people who created garments used to cleanse out the material. God wants to purge us, guys, men and women. God wants to purge us. We can't do it ourselves. When we're struggling with sin, we can't do it ourselves. God has got to hold us over the fire. He will see you through it. And Malachi tells the people, God's going to respond, but not in the way you thought. You need a bigger view of God. What's the goal of this fire? He states it clearly. Verse 3, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi. And He will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Not that pitiful thing that they were bringing in chapter 1 where God says, close the door, I don't even want it. He's going to purify His people that our worship might be acceptable, authentic, upright, and holy. The whole book of Malachi is concerned about right worship with God. Like I said, in chapter 1, he rebukes them because their worship was religion. They went through the motion and they didn't care how pitiful their sacrifice was. In chapter 2, we looked at last week, that they were willing to compromise their relationship, their fellowship, their worship of God for the pursuit of a relationship with someone who didn't know God. God's concern was for their worship. And that's why He says, don't marry an unbeliever. That's why He says, do not be faithless to your wife or to your husband. Because He wants right worship from His people. And in chapter 3, He says, God's going to take actions in order to make us right worshipers. There's a, a void in our lives that can only be filled by God and the worship of Him. Anything else is idolatry. Sex will not fill that void. Sports will not fill that void. Your career will not fill that void. Food will not fill that void. Only God will fill the void. When we try to fill it with other things, we're like a child who places a triangular shape into a peg hole that's shaped like a rectangle. It's not going to fit. It's not going to fit. And God who knows best wants to align the circle with the circle, the square with the square, that our worship might be acceptable and pleasing to Him. But the glory, the beauty, the wonder of this message is God doesn't stop there. Not only will 
the worship be right and acceptable. But verse 4 says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years, as in the times when Moses would enter the tabernacle, or David would shout in the temple, or Solomon would cry out to God and worship. God's going to restore true and upright worship. But God doesn't leave this unfinished here. Because the original question was, where's the God of justice? And God says, well, first I'm going to deal with my people and purify them. But then in verse 5, God says, I'm going to act in justice. Follow with me in verse 5. He says, then, after these things, then, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, who oppress the widow, who oppress the fatherless, against those who, who uh, thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. God will one day fully execute justice on all evil and wickedness. And we see it in part in this day, and we shall see it in full in eternity. Sorcery was a demonic way to call upon uh, powers. Sorcerers would harm the spiritually weak and lead them astray. I guess the implicit command for us is don't tamper with things that seek power outside of God. Ouija boards, horoscopes. I mean, really, is the star, are the stars going to tell you your future? I think God is sorrowed when we turn to a horoscope for direction. God says He will execute justice on adulterers. These are unrepentant individuals. And last week we looked at it that these are people who've broken their covenant with their spouse. They've created great harm. And God says, don't worry, I will. I will act upon that. He says, upon those who swear falsely. These are liars. It's interesting, Revelation 21.8 says that God will judge liars. It's a, it's a good call to watch our tongue, huh? God is truth. He has no place for falsehood. Especially a falsehood that oppresses someone who is innocent. God says, I'm going to act swiftly on this. And he says, I'm going to act swiftly on the oppressor who oppress a worker, who offer them a, a certain wage and do a bait and switch and give them another, or who get their eight hours of work and then shoo them off and never to pay them. God says, I will, take, I will judge those who oppress the hired worker, who oppress the widow, who take advantage of them because of their social, their social situation in this day in particular and in our day as well against those who are fatherless. God says, I'm going to judge those who take advantage. And then lastly, those who thrust aside the sojourner. He sums it all up in that last statement. He says, and those, he says, and they do not fear me. Despicable actions, evil, wickedness, rebellion, arrogance, defiance, in our world is a result of the lack of fear of God. 
People who don't fear God have no consideration for Him. And God in His mercy has a, has a time frame that in essence is delaying in His mercy, not that He's not working, but He's extending this. But one day He will swiftly execute justice. And that is a word that He has for the people in response to their questions. Where is God when evil happens? Where is God in the midst of all this? Are we going to conclude like the Israelites that if God doesn't act against something, He must approve of it? Are we going to conclude that if God were good, He would do something about it? And since He's not doing something about it, He must not be good? Are we going to conclude that God is not concerned about justice? Or that He's not in control? Or that he's stalling because he doesn't care? Let our view of God be grander than that. Let it be bigger. Where we can see that God acts in his timing. That God acts to purify his people. That God acts to execute justice. And in one day, he will do this in completion. A big understanding of God I could see darkness in a new light and recognize that although we don't see him at work, it doesn't mean he's not at work. We need to grow in a deeper understanding of him. Now a few words of how to do that. How do we grow in a deeper understanding of God? Or better yet, maybe a better question to ask at first is, how do we know if our, our theology is shallow? Well, the fact that when God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, never brings you comfort, that shows that your view of Him is inadequate at this moment. Not that it's going to take away your sorrow, but that you can stop and say, God, I know you're in control. I trust you in the midst of it. If you're not there, you've got to make it a point in your life to find opportunities to grow deeper in your understanding of Him. Place yourself under the teaching of people who open the Word of God and present a deeper understanding of Him. At Good News Bible Church, we have great opportunities in our adult learning every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. And I'm thoroughly grieved that not many of us take, take uh, advantage of it. When we think that we're sufficient where we're at in our walk with God, we're, we're in danger. And God has put together His church to provide opportunities for learning. Take advantage of it. Presently, uh, Wilson is teaching a series on godly leadership. That's meat. Kerwin's teaching a series on Genesis. That's meat. And this is a continual thing of good news. We go from one series to the next. That we might not be shallow people, but that we could be deeper. In our mosaic groups, there are opportunities for learning. I know of groups that have gone through the Thessalonian books, a men's group that's gone through Hebrews, Ladies' group has gone to First uh, Corinthians. My group's in the book of Mark right now. We're opening the scriptures so that we can have uh, ammunition for trials. And that we can have praise in the times of peace. When we're in the middle of a trial, that's not the time to begin to understand or to begin to pursue an understanding of God's sovereignty. Certainly do it, but it's better to do it before the trial. Listen to Godly Radio. There's great teachers on Moody. 
course, open your Bible on your own. Get alone with Jesus. Cultivate a life of prayer. Listen to God. Speaking of myself here as well. Cultivate disciplines. If you're finding yourself out of control, fast. Fast tomorrow. Skip lunch, skip dinner, skip breakfast. Just do it. Set your heart and your mind right before God. Don't be guilty of shallowness. There's no excuse for it. Especially not in America. Mercy, we have so many resources at our fingertips. Shame on us when we settle for shallowness. People of God. Shallowness leads to improper questioning. We walk in murky waters and ultimately we weary God with shallowness. Doesn't mean you've got to be an expert in God's word. Doesn't mean you've got to be the most brightest person in the room. But you've got to be pursuing Him. Dear people of God, heed this command from Malachi. Recognize that God indeed is at work. God indeed is at work to refine you and with great care like a refiner. And that God will have the final word on evil. At the end, God wins. Take comfort in that, my brothers and sisters. And let's pursue Him this week. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh Lord Jesus, we confess before you, God, our contentment with shallowness. God, we don't want to be like the people you rebuke in Malachi 2.17, God. Oh Lord, we want to see the bigger picture and that's you in control even if we can't see the details. God, help us. Help us, God, when there's great sorrow in our lives. Maybe we'd be like the man who met Jesus after he came down from the mountain. He says, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, refine us as you would. We not begrudge it, Lord. Refine us as you would that we might be authentic in our worship with you. Oh, Lord, may we set our hearts to pursue you as your children. In the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to ask the prayer.